We'll hear argument first this morning in Metamune Incorporated versus Genentech. Mr. Kester. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. As of this morning, it is exactly 70 years ago to the day, minus four months, that this Court heard argument challenging the new Federal Declaratory Judgment Act of 1934 in an action to construe an insurance contract. And exactly 25 years later, 25 days later, in a unanimous opinion written by Chief Justice Hughes, joined by Justices Stone, Brandeis, and others, the Act was held fully consistent with Article III of the Constitution. This morning you are here because an action was brought for a declaratory judgment that a biomedical manufacturer need not pay large sums under a license as patent royalties under a patent it contends is invalid, unenforceable, and not infringed, but is paying royalties under protest in the meantime. That complaint was ordered dismissed by the Federal Circuit as outside the Article III judicial power of the United States. In detail, the petitioner, Metamune, is a biotech company formed in 1988. During the 1990s — Mr. Kester, would yes. it — would it — would your position be different if the contract contained a specific — the license, a specific provision uh, specifying that the licensee may not sue? No, it — it would not, Your Honor, because you, — you, Do you think such a provision would be enforceable? I doubt it would be enforceable. It would be — a matter under the Lear case, Lear against Atkins, it would be an it would be an affirmative defense if such a if such a claim were raised. This case is here at the level of subject matter jurisdiction. Excuse me, I don't I don't understand what you just said. Okay. You, you mean it would be enforceable that that that, that, that if uh, if such a suit were brought, the licensor could raise that contractual provision as a basis for dismissing the suit. Under twelve, under twelve B six, perhaps. So then it is enforceable. No, but your no. point is it, it's not jurisdictional. It's not jurisdictional, exactly, Justice Souter. Yeah. This is a jurisdictional ruling, right. and, and and that's all that this court granted certiorari on. Well, well, but as a matter of policy, we we at, at some point, either in this case or some later case, I may have to address the question whether or not such a provision is enforceable. If it is, we'd maybe not be talking about it much. It's just going to be boilerplate in every license agreement, and that's the end of it. And, 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 so and it but it, on the other hand, it may be that there are, are, are reasons um, not to enforce this so that we don't have courts flooded with lawsuits, et cetera, et cetera. And, the, and those reasons, I would suggest, Justice Kennedy, were taken care of in Lear, for the most part, in uh, 1969. Provisions in license contracts that prevent challenges to the contracts are not enforceable under the patent laws of the United States. But then, as I was saying, that is a matter of patent law. That's not a matter of jurisdictional law. We're well, let's look at what might be a matter of jurisdictional law. I take it from your position, there's nothing preventing uh, Genentech from suing either, is there? In other words, to establish the validity of their patent. It, is, it has happened on various occasions that patentees have brought suit to establish the, valen, the validity against, of, against licensees? Against, against licensees and, and others. And the, uh, against the, licensees who, who are not claiming that the patent is invalid? I and mean, where is the controversy? The, con the controversy could arise in any number of ways. I mean, I, I can see if the, if the licensee says the patent is invalid, that the patentee is just paying its royalties. How does the The, pa the patentee could be paying his royalties. The patentee could also be putting ads in the paper saying this, this is not a valid patent. It could, it could have acquired a lot of publicity. And, and in the end, there could be reasons and there have been such cases, which we cited, 47 of our brief, where such suits have brought, been brought. The practice if, 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 the, if, the, if the licensee came into court and said, I'm not contesting this patent, that would be the end of it, wouldn't it? If, if the licensee said, I am not contesting that patent, that, that could be. 
Well, but the, the, the patentee would just say, look, we have a license. I think the patent's valid, and you owe me a dollar a unit. Mm-hmm. The, the licensee says, well, I don't think it's valid, so I owe you nothing. And they settle on a license for 50 cents. Mm-hmm. Why can't the patentee say, you know, if I get a judicial decision establishing that the patent is valid, I can charge a higher license, either when this agreement expires or, or for other licenses? That, I, I agree with that, Mr. Chief Justice, but the, the, the practicality is that a patentee starts out with essentially a judgment that the patent is, is valid. There is a presumption of validity, and uh, to challenge that patent, uh, that presumption of validity, is a very difficult undertaking. Most of them don't bother. Why would they? If they, if they, if they are receiving, uh, if they're receiving. Uh, I'm trying to see how far you want, are willing to push your <laughs> argument that just because there's been an agreement, uh, perhaps even a settlement that that somehow or another doesn't moot the controversy, the underlying legal dispute. And it, I gather your answer to me is that Genentech or a patentee can sue even though they have an existing — they're getting royalties from the licensee. They can still sue the licensee. A, a, a settlement does not deprive a federal court of subject matter jurisdiction. That's the narrow point that is before this case. Before why, this why aren't you, you — you said the only question before the court is jurisdictional. If that's so, why isn't your position that the Federal Circuit put the wrong label on this, that license is listed in 8C as an affirmative defense? So whatever the outcome should be, the wrong label should, is, was used. It shouldn't be a subject matter jurisdiction. shouldn't be 12B1. It should be an 8C affirmative defense. And then you're out of the jurisdiction box, but you're left with the same underlying question. <clears throat> but not the same underlying question, Justice Ginsburg, with respect, because then you, you are in a situation like uh, the business forms case in the Seventh Circuit, uh, which came out shortly after, after Lear. There was a settle, settlement, and, the, uh, and it was argued that the settlement was not effective, because of the Lear decision. And parties can't settle themselves out of the Lear decision. But that is all under 12b-6 and not 12b-1. This case involves a 12b-1 motion, not a 12b-6. But what good would it do? Suppose we said, Federal Circuit, you put the wrong label on it. It should be 12b-6, not 12b-1, or perhaps even 8c, affirmative defense. Then you go back to the Federal Circuit, and they'll come up with the same decision. And as long as you are licensed and are paying your royalties, you have — they just put a different label on it. They, you, have, you have no — you have not stated a claim. That, that would be effectively overruling Lear, which is what I think is what many of the parties in this case actually seek to do. Lear does not — allow inhibitions of challenges to patent licenses. A licensee can challenge the validity, the enforceability of the patent. That's because there's a public interest in this as well. Parties cannot simply contract with each other uh, and prevent a challenge to, to a patent the, the Federal Circuit distinguished here and said, uh, but in Lear, the uh, licensee had stopped paying royalties. Isn't that so? That, those were the facts of Lear. But it happened that way in Lear. But that wasn't the reasoning of Lear. Lear, Lear would not totally cover that situation. But we would submit to this Court it shouldn't make any difference. The reasoning of Lear is the same. The licensee cannot, by contract, uh, be uh, stopped, licensee estoppel, uh, from challenging a patent. So there's, there's no way, I, under your view, that a patent holder can protect itself from suit through any license arrangement or any, uh, any agreement of any kind? I suspect there are many ways, Mr. Chief Justice, but, but not by th- throwing them out on a jurisdictional basis at the very first moment of the lawsuit. There may be ways this could be arranged 
at the second level through well, what, what are those ways? I mean, the ones that have been mentioned as possibilities in the government brief, one you rejected, um, and the other that was mentioned um, was if you sue, if the licensee sues, then the royalty fees will be upped. Would that be um, effective? That, that is a question that would arise under Lear against Atkins. And the question before this Court in that situation, if it got to this Court, would be, is that kind of a provision compatible with the policy that was so firmly expressed by Justice Harlan and Lear and has been reiterated in so many subsequent cases of this Court? So you, you have rejected both of the government's suggestions on what the patent holder might do to protect itself do you have anything concrete that you would concede the patent holder could do? I don't think that I have rejected both the government's suggestions. I've said that they raise problems on, as to the scope of Lear. With respect to whether we're talking about a, a, a jurisdictional uh, defense or whether we're talking about an affirmative defense assuming jurisdiction, is there any is there any reason for us to accept your position other than the reason that you have mentioned a number of times, and that is uh, the the adoption and encouragement of a public policy that allows uh, patent challenges freely? Is 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 that the nub of, of of our reasoning? If we were to support your position either jurisdictionally in this case or or in in recognizing. Or the, the, in dealing with the affirmative defense in, in another case? Not quite, Justice Souter. I would say the nub of your position is, is the, the Altvater case, the Aetna case, the, the well, Maryland Well, Altvater is difficult for you, isn't it, because there was an injunction in Altvater, wasn't there? That, but that but but which, this, which raises an entirely different policy issue. Well, I would say what it, what it raises is simply an extra fact, but it wasn't a necessary fact because this Court in Altwater specifically pointed out that even if there weren't an injunction there, there would be, uh, there would be the, the danger forced on the licensee of an infringement suit. And an infringement suit means possibly an injunction of the patent, treble damages, any number of sanctions, an injunction suit can put a company out of business, especially a company like my client here. But that is, that is a good reason, and I take it it's, it's your logic, that that is a good reason to recognize a fairly broad right on the part of a licensee to challenge. Right. In, in other words, the, 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 the nub of your position, as I understand it, is, is, is the public policy uh, that, that, that favors relative it, freedom to change. It, it's, it's more, it's more than public policy. It's, it's Article 3. Article 3 says that you can bring a lawsuit in this situation, and that was settled in, no. in Aetna. No, I, I, I realize that, but the, I mean, what we've got in this case and in any of these cases is, is a, is a question of line drawing under Article 3. And your argument is you ought to draw the line where you want it drawn. Uh, primarily because uh, there, there are practical reasons to favor a public policy uh, of, of free challenge. Well, <clears throat> what we are presenting in this case is a dispute about money. It's not abstract. It's not hypothetical. It's not conjectural. It is concrete, immediate. All the facts are in. It's definitely adversarial. It's legal. Well, you, you can have such a dispute on a theoretical question between, I don't know, the, the, the ACLU and the National Rifle Association, but that doesn't uh, create a case or controversy. What, what is the injury, the imminent injury to your, uh, to your client that, uh, uh, that is the basis for, uh, for the case or controversy? The, is it anything other than I have to pay the royalties that I agreed to pay? It, it is the... It is that I am having to pay the royalties that I say I did not agree to pay because this is an invalid patent. Money is being paid by my client every quarter, large amounts of money. That is a major injury. Is it unlawful to, to agree to pay somebody money uh, who does not have a patent? 
It is. I mean, you're, 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 you're speaking as though somehow that such a contract is uh, contrary to public policy and void. No, we're saying that that isn't what we agreed to. We're saying this is a contract dispute. And the whole purpose of the — Well, then why, why are you paying it if you, if you don't think you owe it? Because — because the — Because of the threat of treble damages and injunctions. If exactly. we're trying to figure out where the public policy is here, why don't we give some weight to those congressional enactments that obviously fortify the strength of the patent? In other words, Congress passed these provisions providing for treble damages for attorney's fees. But and, and to respond that — there's got to be a public policy to counterbalance that. Congress can always do that if it wants, but it didn't uh, — it thinks that you need these provisions to protect the patent holders. But, Mr. Chief Justice, Congress can also amend the Declaratory Judgment Act if it wants. And Congress was proud of the Declaratory Judgment Act when it was passed in 1934, and the legislative history of it, and nothing in the text is contrary, says the purpose of this is so that contracts can be resolved without breach, and judicial determinations can be had. It's like a non-invasive, a less invasive kind of surgery. Mr. Kester, may I ask you this question? Is it your view that GenProbe represented a change in the law? Absolutely. Were there, before GenProbe was decided, were there any cases like this case that were decided? There were many, Your Honor. And they were decided where the where the licensee brought suit challenging validity while the license was we, still in effect. We we had suits in the Third Circuit, the Seventh Circuit, the Second Circuit, and even in the Federal Circuit in its early days, where it quoted those cases which said it is not necessary for the licensee to stop paying payments in order for Article Three to be satisfied. This, this case came as a shock in 2004. And, in fact, the judges below in this series of cases all said, we thought it was settled law the other way. All this case represents, from our point of view, is let's go back to the way it has always been. I'd like to reserve balance. My Thank you, Mr. Kester. Uh, Ms. Maynard? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, there is a concrete dispute between the parties about their legal rights and obligations. If that dispute is resolved, money will change hands. That is an Article III case or controversy. How do you ever end these things? Let's say they have this dispute, they bring the litigation, and they settle it. They're saying, okay, we're going to settle it, and instead of paying a, a license fee of 50 cents, it's going to be 40 cents, and we'll go on. Then they, they can sue again, I take it. In, in that situation, recognizing that's not the situation we have here. And they settle that, by the way? Is it all right to settle it, or does that inter interfere with the policy that patents have to be open to challenge? <laughs> May I, if I can answer the first question first. Either. If there were to be a settlement in the second case, there, it would not be an Article Three case or controversy problem with the second case, and that suit should not be dismissed under 12b-1. The, in that case, the patent holder might have a valid 12b-6 defense, and uh, the suit, laying aside enforceability issues that you raise, may be easily resolved on that ground. But in terms of the question before the Court today, that wouldn't be an Article Three matter. Um, I think as a policy matter, so moving off the question before the Court right now, as a policy matter, um, the, it's not clear from this Court's cases exactly what types of agreements would be enforceable. I think there's a, a spectrum of cases one can imagine, ranging from Pope, the type of um, promise that was extracted in Pope, which this Court held was unenforceable. Well, I, I think you overread Pope. All Pope said was that they're not going to grant sp specific performance. In fact, they said Whatever you may think of the policy here, we don't — specific performance calls on the equitable discretion, and we're not going to do it. But I, I don't read Pope as holding that the clauses are otherwise unenforceable. In other well, words, you may be entitled to damages, and that may be measured by the license fee that you agreed to pay. Well, there certainly would be a question, though, the way that Lear read Pope and under Lear about whether a bare agreement not to challenge 
licenses, especially ones like in Pope, where they agreed not to challenge the license even beyond the term, would be enforceable. And the government thinks there's a, a spectrum. One, at one end of the spectrum would be licenses like those in Pope, and at the other end of the spectrum would be a consent decree entered after settlement uh, of a bona fide patent infringement suit, um, where they, which included an agreement not to settle. Now, that's clearly not what we have here. No, is, if, if I guess there are three possible positions on the question of whether a licensee can attack a contract, uh, a patent, where he has a license and wants to keep the contract. One, he can never do it. Two, he can always do it. Three, it depends on what the contract says. Now, do any of those questions have anything to do with the question before us, which is whether it's a case or controversy? No, Your Honor. All right. If we were to reach the question, which is very interesting, what is the government's position as to which of those three positions is the right position? Were we to reach it? I agree with you. I don't see it in front of us, but maybe it is. If it were, what would be your view? The, the government's view is that, that there's a spectrum along the spectrum, and it would have, you'd have to consider each case on its terms. And it's not clear from this Court's cases where the policies in that so situation basically, way out. So basically, you're not certain. The government's view would be it is a matter as to whether you can sue uh, claiming the patent is invalid, whether the licensee can do it, that probably, but you're not certain, you haven't made up your mind definitely because it's not in this case, but you think it's going to be something they could regulate themselves by contract? It's certainly not foreclosed by this Court's precedent, and it's an open question where the policies, how they would weigh out. There's no language in this license, however, suggesting any type of settlement. And moreover, I think it's important to recognize that the parties here actually have a concrete dispute about what the licensing agreement means. Count one in the complaint is, is, is asking for a declaration. Well, you don't think that matters, though, do you? I mean, even if they all agree there's no dispute about what the license agreement means, your position is still the same, right? There is an Article Three controversy because they challenge the validity of the patent? If the parties have a concrete dispute about the validity of the patent and it would affect their rights and obligations in the way that it would here, in other words, that money will no longer be due to the respondents if the patent's invalid. Is that always the the case? I mean, can, can, can you enforce a license agreement based on an invalid patent? You thought it was valid. Parties had a dispute about it, whether it was valid. You entered into agreement, say, well, let's split the difference. Well, you know, 50 cents rather than a dollar or nothing. It's determined that the patent is invalid. Can the patentee then still say, well, you still owe me the money. We kind of cut, split the difference. That was part of the agreement. It, it might depend on whether there was consideration beyond the patent itself. In, in, the, in, this, ca- in this case, though, the petitioner claims that if the, if the patent is invalid, they no longer owe licensing fees, and under Lear, they would be entitled to the licensing fees that they've paid since they began challenging back. So it's clear that under either the contract or a question of Contractually? The- they, they say that that's their contractual right? They claim that under the licensing agreement, they only owe royalties on valid claims. That's count one of the complaint. Um, where, 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 where does that appear in the licensing agreement? Or, uh, where does it appear in the licensing yeah, I, agreement? I took them as, as a, just asserting a, a general proposition of law, that where, where they've agreed to pay royalties uh, because of a patent. If the patent is invalid, they don't have to pay royalties, not because there's some special provision in this contract. The parties actually have a concrete dispute about the meaning of the licensing agreement in that regard, Justice Scalia. On page 399 of the joint appendix is the provision about which they have a dispute. And the language in there um, provides that <clears throat> they will pay on substances which would, if not licensed under this agreement, infringe one or more claims of either or both of the Shimera patents or co-expression patents, which have neither expired nor been held invalid by a court or other body of competent jurisdiction. There was similar language it's really not much at issue in this case, and that's clearly a case of controversy, isn't it? There's a dispute over the meaning of that provision of the, of the agreement. Yes, Your Honor. Gee, there's, there's less here than meets the eye. Th- that's what the government believes, yeah. Your Honor. It's also, the, the licensee also does not need to breach 
the licensing agreement in order to create a case or controversy. The licensee is currently paying royalties that it does not believe it owes and that it believes it will be entitled to have back if it should prevail on its interpretation of the, of the patent and the licensing agreement. It doesn't have to make that injury more severe by breaching. That's clear from this Court's decision in Altvader. Um, in Altvader, royalties were being demanded and royalties were being paid, but nevertheless, this Court held. Oh, but that has been pointed out that was pursuant to an injunction. Yes, it was pursuant to an injunction, but that was not important to the Court's reasoning. What the Court said is you need not suffer patent damages in order to bring the suit, not a contempt. You need not breach the injunction and, and put yourself at risk of treble damages for infringement. It was the patent damages that put the licensee at risk, and that's the same risk that the petitioner faces here and should not have to bear in order to bring suit. The case or controversy is whether or not the, they owe the, owe the royalties. The whole point of the Declaratory Judgment Act was allow contracting parties not to have to sever their ongoing contractual relations in order to get disputes resolved between do themselves. You think, do you think there would be a case or controversy if Genentech were suing to establish the validity of its patent? In the situation that we have here, Your Honor? Yes. Yes, I do, where the petitioner claims that the patent is invalid, that they could that, — that the, that the petitioner's claims unsettles their right, damages their property value potentially, and that they could bring a declaratory judgment action of validity. And, and what would their — what would their concrete injury be? What, what, what is the threatened imminent injury that they would assert in that, in that action? Well, right now — You, you have a licensee who's paying — Paying the license fees, what what is their concrete injury? It, it, from the moment the petitioner has an argument that from the moment it cease, it starts claiming that the patent is invalid and pays under protest that is entitled to those royalties back. Um, but so, so long as they're still paying the royalties, isn't that sort of an abstract uh, disagreement? I mean, it's it's sort of like uh, uh, the ACLU saying that the patent's invalid. You know, it's a nice theoretical question that we can argue about, but as long as they're paying the uh, royalties, where's the concrete injury? Well, I think technically, Justice Scalia, they probably have a claim for patent infringement to which the defense, as Justice Kennedy points out, would be an easy defense. So there's not an Article III lack of case or controversy. I find it very difficult to see how there would be a a proper declaratory judgment action brought by the patentee here. I, it, it's just not the kind of a situation where you can have a mirror image suit. I, I don't see what the Well, you need you, — may I answer that question? You need not have a mirror image suit in that sense, Justice Scalia, and Altvader makes that clear. In Altvader, the patentee's claim was much narrower than the counterclaim, and nevertheless, the Court allowed that counterclaim to proceed. Thank you, Counsel. Ms. Mahoney? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, um, I'd like to start with the fact that there are four counts in the complaint for declaratory relief. The first one is styled as a contractual relations claim. The other three are styled as patent law claims. And, and it's important to emphasize at the outset that this Court in Skelly Oil, in Calderon, and in really all of the cases has said it's very important to look behind the labels that a Declaratory Judgment Act plaintiff puts on their claims, we need to actually see what is the cause of action they're trying to adjudicate so we can do an accurate assessment of, of justiciability, standing, ripeness, uh, federal question jurisdiction. I want to start by explaining why there is no contract claim at issue here. Uh, you heard today uh, they're trying to salvage this, say that there's a contract dispute, a dispute about the terms of the contract. They didn't argue that below, and with good reason. And I just point you to the briefs in the Federal Circuit, um, Roman numeral one, which is all about uh, uh, the improper dismissal of the Te- Declaratory Judgment Act claims, refers to the fact that these are, quote, patent law claims, end quote, at page 27. Nowhere do they say that there is a dispute about the proper interpretation of the contract terms? And let me explain why. The contract terms, which were just read to you, is Section 110 of, of 1.10 at JA399 of the license, says that there is an obligation to pay royalties for synergists uh, on any claim, not any valid claim, any claim that has not been held invalid by a court or other competent um, uh, 
jurisdiction from which no appeal has or may be taken. Now, they never said below that clause means that we can come to court and have the court decide whether this patent is is valid, and depending on whether we win or not, then we can uh, stop paying. And the reason they didn't make that argument is it was rejected by this court a 100 years ago in United States versus Harvey Steele. Very similar clause. The United States says this means that we don't have to pay if the patent is invalid. And in an opinion by Justice Holmes, this court rejected it out of hand uh, by, and said this was a conventional proviso. We don't even need to look to evidence of the party's intent because this is a standard proviso. It does not mean, and they said it was a twisted interpretation that the government was offering, it doesn't mean that the licensee, quote, thought the patent bad and would like to have the court say so now, end quote. Yet that is, that is exactly about Article Three case or controversy? It is in the following sense, Your Honor. Um, they can't just show up here today and say, well, there really is a dispute about the contract that they never argued below and is foreclosed. Shouldn't, shouldn't we send that back? I mean, I thought we were here to decide one question, that the Federal Circuit has said that unless there is a reasonable apprehension of a lawsuit, you can't bring a declaratory judgment action because of the Constitution of the United States. Now, I have to admit, I've looked up, or I've had my law clerk look up, probably now hundreds of cases. And we can't find in any case such a requirement. Indeed, uh, the very purpose, as I, we've just heard the SG say, of this Act, the Declaratory Judgment Act, seems to be to allow people to a contract who are in a real concrete disagreement to get a declaratory judgment without getting rid of the contract. But I might be wrong about that. But you've now argued a different point. So isn't the right thing for us to do, to decide the issue in front of us and then send it back if you're right that they have to pay, whether they win or lose? If they're right that they promise not to sue, if you're right on 14 other grounds, you might win. But should we decide those grounds today? Why? Well, first of all, with respect to this issue, whether the, whether there would be jurisdiction over a real live contract dispute, uh, they never argued it, Your Honor. Uh, it's not part of this case. The Federal Circuit didn't address it because they didn't argue it because it's but foreclosed question, by a precedent. The question that is presented to us, whatever they suggested at this oral argument that wasn't in brief, the question it presented to us is, was the Federal Circuit right when they said you have no access to a declaratory judgment unless there is a reasonable apprehension that you will be sued? Your Honor, that is the right, that is the right starting point for a test depending on the cause of action they're seeking to adjudicate. And here, what the Federal Circuit properly understood is that they are seeking to adjudicate affirmative defenses to an infringement action under the patent laws. And just like in Steffel, um, if you're trying to adjudicate on an anticipatory basis an an enforcement action, you have to show that you would reasonably fear that enforcement action. And, in fact, Steffel uses that language, and Poe versus Ullman dismisses a, a case for failure to establish a genuine fear of prosecution. But then you have to go one step beyond, and that is to say, uh, are they, is the cause of action not ripening because the, uh, the, the declaratory judgment plaintiff is forfeiting their legal rights in order to avoid some very severe harm that would be cognizable coercion? That's the test that's used in, te- in Steffel for, in, in essence, being able to test uh, a, uh, defenses to a cause of action uh, that, or to an And why doesn't that work here? It doesn't work here for several reasons. Um, most fundamentally, this is a settlement. I mean, Mr. Steffel did not enter into a settlement or a compromise with the prosecutor. He wasn't complying because he was under an agreement to do so. Uh, here, it has been settled for, for <laughs> forever that if, if a, an agreement, if you're making payments pursuant to an agreement in the nature of a compromise, you can't come and say that it's been coerced or it's a form of what, duress. What, why should we accept the, the characterization that it, it's a compromise? As, as I, and maybe I'm just factually wrong here. I thought at the time they ended into the license agreement 
They, they had some disagreements uh, about the scope of the, 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 the then patent, the scope of the anticipated patent, and so on, and, and they couldn't very well be resolved. But they were, they were not settling, in the, in the classic sense of the word, a, a let us say, a, a focused claim one against the other. I think the answer, Your Honor, is they weren't settling for all time in the sense that they could never get out of the deal. Certainly they could repudiate and then go ahead and sue. But yet at page 3 of their petition, they expressly say the reason they entered into this agreement was in order to avoid the costs and risks of litigation. It is the reason — But had they gotten to the point prior to the execution of the contract in which one party was saying — uh, you may not do this, and the other party was saying, oh, yes, I can, so that there was, there was a, a, a focused controversy that would have been the subject matter of a conventional lawsuit then and there had there not been this license agreement. Not exactly, but what they did was they headed it off at the pass. They understood. But the that question is, how, how, how far ahead of the pass can they get and still call it a settlement in the sense that you're using that term? It, it's a compromise. It's a compromise of the very claims they're trying to adjudicate here. What they want to adjudicate are affirmative defenses to a patent infringement action. That is not a ripe claim, and there is not sufficient immediacy because they are preventing that claim from ripening by continuing to make voluntary payments but, under but their you, agreement. Right, but you are saying that the status of that agreement for, for purposes of, of, of the jurisdictional question here is exactly the same as the status of an agreement that they might have entered into after one party had brought suit against the other. Well, and and they, they had settled, uh, and then later on somebody uh, wanted to, 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 uh, to repudiate the settlement. I don't know if it's exactly the status. For instance, in a settlement after litigation has been filed, I think that uh, Lear would say that you can't even repudiate that. Uh, but, but certainly, so there might be some differences. But from in, the in standpoint event, of coercion. It's equivalent to a settlement after a formal demand has been made. It is equivalent to that in the following sense. They understood that if they, if they didn't get a license, that they would be exposed to Genentech's claims under the, under the infringement laws. And in order to avoid that exposure, even though they had all the information they needed to assess the validity of this patent at the time. Suppose they didn't have all the information. Suppose you enter into a license agreement, you're, you're, you're convinced as, 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 as the one who's going to pay the license fee that it's a good pat- patent. After the agreement signed, uh, the technological advances, other disclosures indicate that the patent is, is, is deficient. Could you sue then? Uh, no, I don't think so, un- unless. But then, so then the argument that you've made is, is just not relevant no, for I, us, that the fact that they knew everything. They did. And, and it also means that this isn't really a settlement in, 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 in any respect. It's a compromise of claims that could be brought. Ms. Mahoney, can I ask this question? Supposing at the time they negotiate the license agreement, there's some uncertainty about whether the patent is valid or not. So at the end of the license agreement, they agree on the royalties, the term, and everything it covers, but they put in a provision and say, we're not entirely sure the patent's valid, so we reserve the right to bring an action challenging the validity of the patent. We will pay royalties in the meantime, and you will accept these royalties as sufficient for the use of the patent, that if we win, you don't have to pay royalties. If we lose, you do. Would that be a valid provision? I don't think so, but, but that would certainly be a closer case if there is. But, but would but it I, not be precisely the same issue as a jurisdictional matter as to whether there's a case or controversy? Um, no, I don't think so, because uh, the, the real issue in terms of STEFL is whether you can say that the party is being coerced. And at least in your hypothetical, you could say that they He's have. Being co- Coerced, but he's bargaining a little better barg- better royalty rate than he o- otherwise would have to pay. Well, in, in terms of, of, of whether they're, if the parties expressly agreed that that was part of their deal, then, then you at least wouldn't say that there was a, a, an issue of coercion. But here that isn't what happened. Instead, they used no, a I'm standard really asking proviso. whether the parties could agree to create a case or controversy. I think probably not, Your Honor. Uh, I think that's one of, the, one of the problems. Will you assume Justice Stevens' hypothetical? Assume it. Take it as given. They did put that in. I know you think they didn't, but I want to assume it. Mm-hmm. Good, now, good. I'd like to also assume. Can I have a review of the bidding? What, what, <laughs> go, go, go back, go, what is the hypothetical? If the hypothetical continue on this. that they write into the contract the party who is the licensee says, and we, can, we stipulate that the licensee thinks that the patent is invalid. 
Nonetheless, the licensee wants a license for business reasons. Therefore, the licensee and the licensor agrees that after they sign the contract and he's paying $1,000 a month in royalties, he can go into court and challenge the patent. So we assume that's written into the contract. Mm -hmm. And now let us also assume a state of the law. The state of the law is that there is no public policy or any other policy that forbids such a condition in a contract. All right? Now, on those two assumptions, the next thing that happens is that the licensee asks for a declaratory judgment that the patent is invalid. On those assumptions, is there a case or controversy under the Federal Constitution? If not, why not? I don't think so, because I think what they're really asking for is advice about a business deal under those circumstances. He says, by the way, if I win, I will, in fact, save $42 billion a year in licenses I would other have to pay, Mm -hmm. and the other side well, or I, I was at $1,000. I meant $42 billion. Okay. But, 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 now, but now can they come even before they, they sign the deal? In no. other words, what's oh, no, the that's, line? I'm not in asking words, your hypothetical. Uh, no, I'm just saying I'm I, think that, my I think the problem, I think the problem is it, is it leads to the notion that uh, parties can simply sort of set up a, um, even if there's not true adversity, and come to court for answers to legal questions, and that has Well, isn't something- there true adversity? I, w- I thought the assumption underlying the hy- everybody's hypothetical is that if the patent is determined to be invalid, that then, license, then the license agreement is also invalid. Is that is that right? I don't think so. I don't think the license agreement itself is invalid. It simply can you means- can you can you dem- collect can a patentee collect license fees? based on a patent that has been determined to be invalid? Uh, not on that patent, right? But the, the, the well, license It would be pursuant case. to the agreement. Um, if the patent has been under, under um, Lear and other cases, if a patent has been held to be invalid by a final decision of a court, mm-hmm. then I think it is improper for a licensee to seek to obtain Collective royalties. Even if that. the royalty agreement says... You know, we, we have a dispute about the validity of this patent. We don't know. We disagree. And so we've entered into a compromise royalty rate that reflects the uncertainty. But once it's determined to be invalid, the license fees are not collectible. I think that that is correct, Your Honor, um, under, the, under the current state of the law. What if, what if the, one further uh, wrinkle, what if the, the contract goes the further step and says, even if the patent uh, uh, were determined in any action to be invalid, there will still be a, a royalty payable because that's what uh, that's that's that is consideration for the fact that that, that we are not going to uh, start any controversy now. Uh, let's assume they assume precisely the invalidity. Would you say the the contract is unenforceable then? And, um, and, the, and, well, and for jurisdictional purposes, there would be no case of controversy then. That if if under the I'm sorry to, to the, 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 take the chief justice's hypothetical. Add the following. There is a provision in there to the effect that if during the, the term of this contract uh, the, 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 the license is determined to be invalid, royalties will still be payable under this contract mm-hmm. uh, because that is one of the contingencies which is a consideration for our bargain. Would you say in those circumstances uh, that, that your answer would, would, would be the same, that there's, 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 there's no, there's no uh, case of con- Well, I don't know what the dispute would be about, Your Honor, because it sounds like the contract terms would be clear. And if the contract's terms are clear, they would simply go in accordance unless they have an argument that the contract no, but I'm is about unenforceable. If the, if the point is that it is actually invalid, illegal, uh, that, that may be a different case, although I think there would still be an estoppel argument that they should not be permitted to bring that action uh, without uh, giving up the, the benefits of the bargain, which is the immunity from suit. I mean, that is one of the fundamental problems with this case. I but do you see argument- I'm sorry. Do you, do you see a difference between — I guess you're saying there's no difference between my added wrinkle on the hypo and the Chief Justice's hypo for jurisdictional purposes? I don't think that there's a difference from, from a jurisdictional perspective. Okay. But I think here that the, the major problem from a jurisdictional perspective is that there is not anything in the language of the contract that gives them a right to come to court to dispute validity. Instead, What, what about the fact that it's under protest? 
That makes no difference, Your Honor. The fact is that they are making the payments pursuant to an agreement. They're not under compulsion of an injunction. They're doing it because they voluntarily entered into it. Alt-Vader is completely different. There, there was no license agreement in force. The, the courts found that, it, uh, that the reissue patents were never part of the agreement to begin with. In other words, Alt-Vader never agreed to pay royalties. Uh, Alt-Vader had been sued, so there was an, a, a counterclaim for invalidity. Would the and patent holder take the position that uh, sooner or later I'm going to have to fight out validity with someone? And might as well do it sooner rather than later. So I am not going to raise the license as a defense. Would that be a case or controversy? I don't think that the patent holder is allowed to come to court and seek a declaration of validity. I don't think any court has ever allowed that. It's, it's no, the, the patent, the, the, the licensee is coming into court and wants a declaration of Invalidity, so it can manufacture without the fear of an infringement suit. And they're under a license? Yes. Yes. And the uh, patent holder chooses not to plead the license. Chooses not to plead the license. Wouldn't the patent holder have that option? Yes, the patent, uh, well, no, I mean, not necessarily. Their view is that uh, because of the the terms of the agreement that the patent holder has no choice but to, because they're receiving the royalties, to simply. Uh, I, I don't mean their view. I mean, they start a lawsuit. They're saying we. But we that want, is, that's what happened here. We want a declaration of uh, infringement. And the patent holder doesn't take the position that you're taking, instead says, I'm prepared to fight this out now. I know that I have the license, which could be an affirmative defense, but I'm not going to raise it. I'm going to go head-to-head -head on the validity of this patent. Would that be a case or contract? I don't think so, Your Honor, because I don't think the parties are allowed to just decide, well, we'd like to do this now when they're So even, even if the patent holder chooses not to raise the license, the court would have to, on its own motion, say, sorry, uh, you didn't, you're not the master of your defense. We decide that you have to effectively plead the license. I think the plaintiff has to show that they are here pursuant to, that they have a legal right that the, permits them to adjudicate the issue of validity. What the, uh, what the patent owner does or not, I don't think turns this into a case or controversy, that instead we have to start with the fundamental question, what is the cause of action that they are attempting to adjudicate? Is it a contract action or is it a, uh, an action under the patent laws? Is it an infringement action? Here I don't think there's any question but that it is they're trying to adjudicate an action for an infringement that can't arise because they're immune from suit, because they continue to make their payments, and under those circumstances, it is not sufficiently immediate to establish jurisdiction in this court. It is under other fields of the law, isn't it? I mean, I imagine that the very we see all the time declaratory judgments where a state passes a law and the individual says, well, I think this is unconstitutional, but my preferences are not to go to jail. My preferences are not to be penalized. So yeah, my first choice is unconstitutional, and my second is to obey it. There's no possibility in the world that he will violate that law. And yet we've often held that uh, with regulations you have to have the other requirements. You have to have the requirements that uh, it's concrete, it's not just ideological, there's real harm. But if those other requirements are fulfilled, I've never seen anywhere it said that there also has to be a reasonable apprehension of a lawsuit in the absence of the declaratory judgment. I've just never found that phrase, and I can't imagine why it would be part of the law. Your Honor, Poe versus Ullman, this Court actually dismissed a declaratory judgment. Well, there are many dismissed for reasons that they aren't concrete, definite. There are a lot of reasons why to dismiss it. I'm just wondering if there is an additional reason that there has to be a reasonable apprehension of a lawsuit in the absence of the declaratory judgment action. It's that phrase that I've never found anywhere we, and can't think of any reason why that would be an additional constitutional requirement. 
I'm not putting that directly to you because I want to hear you give me the counterexamples. Well, but in Poe versus Ullman, it was a declaratory judgment action. They were seeking to have a statute declared unconstitutional, and this Court did dismiss because they didn't have a reasonable uh, um, fear that they would actually be prosecuted, dismissed for lack of jurisdiction. And you say there has never been a declaratory judgment action except in the instance where, in the absence of the action, the person would have violated the law if it's a government law. In other words, if they're — so uh, it's really not — Even — well, you could. You could. I'm not — it is possible that that framework could be extended. I, it has not been done to date, and, and it would be — As I think we but, both know, in the government area, it happens a lot. It, it, it does, but there is always a reasonable apprehension, and there was always a finding of coercion. Poe versus Ullman says you can't do it unless well, there is well, Poe po versus Ullman was, was a case in which even if there was a violation of the law, there was going to be no prosecution. That's why they — but, but in, 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 this, in this case, uh, if there's a failure to uh, uh, conform to the terms of the license agreement, there's going to be a lawsuit. So I, I think Home versus Holman is, is just not relevant. That, it, it goes to the next point, which is that there still has to be a, a coercive choice. You have to choose there. They're choosing to give up constitutional rights in order to avoid jail and imprisonment, arrest and prosecution. Here, no, no, what's but, at but, issue? But in, in Poe versus Ullman, the ultimate action was basically like violating the contract here, and that's why it's not an applicable precedent. I don't, I don't think it's like violating the contract here, though, Your Honor, because what are the consequences here? What is the choice? First of all, they actually owe the, the royalties under the agreement, so they're trying to escape their bargain, not enforce it. That's number one. So they're not forfeiting any rights under the contract. They're simply trying to get out of the contract. Number two, the consequences here, the choice they're talking about, isn't in the nature of coercion. Uh, again, they're not being arrested or prosecuted. All they're going to do if they walk out of this agreement, if they stop paying royalties, yes, they, they may well be sued for infringement. Uh, but if they do, all they face is the loss of their discount. But your argument seems That's to be based on their having implicitly given up their right to sue. Isn't that right? That was your main argument. This is a settlement. This is in the nature of the settlement. As part of the bargain, the patent holder promises not to sue for infringement. It's not based on them giving up their right to sue in the sense that all they have to do is stop paying royalties and they can sue. Um, they but in have answer to, to the hypotheticals, you seem to say it wouldn't matter if they explicitly did not give up their right to sue. So what is left of this argument that what's involved here is essentially a settlement? Uh, well, it is in the nature of a compromise, Your Honor, and there's nothing in this agreement that gives them a right to sue. They have to find some legal right. What they're really saying, what their argument has always been, is that Lear actually creates an implied right of action for a license uh, e to sue at any time of their choosing. That's been their argument from the beginning. But their concrete right is, as I thought you conceded earlier, that if the patent is declared invalid, they will not owe license fees. That's true, but that's getting the cart be be before the horse. What this Court said in well, U.S. Well, that's what a declaratory judgment action does, though, isn't well, it? Well, I don't think so, Your Honor. I think every single contract case in the lower courts where um, they have allowed a suit to be brought on a contract prior to breach, there was a genuine dispute about the interpretation of the terms. Here, what they're trying to do is adjudicate a cause of action outside of the contract. They're trying to adjudicate an infringement action and then say, aha, see what I have? I have a judgment that the patent's invalid, and so now I'd like to say that I don't have to pay royalties under my contract. Ms. Mahoney, uh, uh, the patent bar is a sort of specialized, more than sort of, it's a specialized bar, and I've never I've never been a part of it. Uh, do, do you agree with the uh, uh, statement of uh, uh, the petitioner's counsel that uh, that uh, Gen Probe came as a uh, as a shock to the? Uh, as a, I, I do not agree that it came as a shock. And in fact, I think that uh, Warner Jenkinson, which is a Second Circuit case that that allowed this kind of action back in the 70s, uh, was one of the only cases ever that allowed it. And other reasons were found to dismiss similar kinds of claims. In Genprobe, uh, it, it was a surprise that a licensee could do this. It, the, the law, by the time that this license was executed in the uh, Federal Circuit, there was a case called Shell Oil, where the Court specifically held that a licensee cannot take advantage of the protections of Lear 
until it has repudiated the license, stopped paying, and said that it wants to challenge validity. So that was the background rule that was in force at the time of this license. And then when you couple that with the fact but that, that this wasn't the, the district court in this very case seemed to say, I think this suit should go forward, but there's GenProbe, and I must follow GenProbe. The district court, at least as I read it, uh, seemed to think that Gen, GenProbe was moved in a different direction from where the Federal Circuit was before. Uh, in all of the prior Federal Circuit cases, the licensee had, uh, had stopped paying royalties. And what the, the, um, the Court explained in GenProbe is that that is the sine qua non, that a licensee can't establish jurisdiction and it can't establish a right to challenge validity if it's still paying royalties. Ms. Mahoney, um, you argue in the alternative that we should dismiss it on the basis of equitable considerations under the Declaratory Judgment Act. We can't reach that argument unless we rule against you on the Article Three question. Is that right? Uh, I don't think so, Your Honor. I think you can because I think that you can uh, do it as an alternative threshold prudential jurisdictional dismissal. In the we nature. would have to be assuming that we had jurisdiction, wouldn't we? Uh, I think under Article Three. I think that a, a prudential dismissal under Article Three would also be fine, and that um, that Steel Co. would allow for that kind of dismissal because Wilton said that you. You can dismiss for lack of jurisdiction at the front end on prudential grounds if you know that there would not be relief allowed at the back end. And I think that, um, that there's no need for a remand to do this. We are really talking about an equitable rule that has governed equitable actions for 300 years. But the jurisdiction is a question of power. Does the Court have the power to do this? A discretion question is different. If we have the power to entertain this case. But as a matter of equity, we're not going to do so. The power question, I think, is it, um, one that's it's either yes or no. Either the court has the power or, or doesn't. But I don't think that the court has to answer that question in order to dismiss on a prudential ground, a prudential jurisdictional ground, and nor is there a need for a remand in Samuels versus Mackle and in Cardinal, for instance. Those are cases where the court adopted prudential rules and went ahead and applied them without remand. I, and no remand's necessary. The Federal Circuit has already looked at this. Uh, Mr. Mahoney, can I ask you one question before your light, uh, light goes off? Yeah, I know it's not goes to the case or controversy issue, but in your view, was the bringing of this action a material breach of an implied condition of the contract that would justify a termination of a license? Uh, it would depend on whether there is an implied covenant, Your Honor. It I'm wasn't asking whether you below. think there was. Um, I think it, it may well be, but I don't think the answer in this case turns on it because I think they have to have their own right to bring the action, whether it's a breach or not, and that they don't. Because they don't have an implied right of action under Lear, they don't have a right to bring this action. Uh, and that, that is an essential component of their ability to challenge the issue of validity. So uh, I think that's the, the, the first and fundamental. Well, if that's so, it's a super violation of an implied covenant. I guess you could get damages. I think that their theory, Your Honor, is that a licensee can do this at any time. And, uh, I and think that, that your theory is that it's a super violation of an implied covenant. Your Honor, I don't think whether it's an implied covenant not or not. Not only did we agree it, but you can't even do it if you agree to I, I think that uh, the, an additional factor that bears on this analysis is also the fact that Congress has never created an implied right of act, has never created a right of action. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Ms. Mahoney. Uh, Mr. Kester, you have three minutes remaining. <clears throat> Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Just several quick items. I think, uh, I think Mr. Chief Justice, uh, you were a while ago putting the horse in front of the cart, which was right where it belongs. The uh, contract claim is clear in the record. It's at uh, page 136 of the Joint Appendix. I don't think more needs to be said about it. Harvey Steele, on which uh, respondents rely, was, of course, overruled. Wait, wait, be before you leave that, do, do you agree that it was not raised below? No, we don't. Where, can you tell us where it was raised below? It, well, it, it's, it's raised in the, in the First Amendment complaint. It's been, it's been here throughout. Mm. If, it, if it even matters. I mean, we wouldn't concede that that, that, that would even matter. Uh, was it raised before the Federal Circuit? Yes, the, the whole record was. You mean, was it argued? Yes. Uh, I, I believe it was. I, I'd have to go back 
in, you mean in terms of the oral argument, it was certainly in the briefs. Uh, it was certainly not waived. Uh, there was never, of course, any anything in the license or any place else where the, where petitioner gave up the right to sue. Petitioner doesn't need permission in the license to sue. And as, as for the shock. Uh, in the lower courts when this case was decided, I, I would call to your attention what the Federal Circuit in 1983 itself said, and, and it quoted the Warner Jenkinson case, which was the Second Circuit case that my friend uh, uh, dismissed somewhat. The C.R. Bard case, this is Federal Circuit early, starts out the opening line, it says, and I quote, this is 716, Fed 2nd, 875, we hold that a patent license need not be terminated before a patent licensee may bring a federal declaratory judgment action, close quote. And the last words of the same opinion at 882 of, 7, uh, of 716 Fed 2nd are, we hold that a patent licensee may bring a federal declaratory judgment action to declare the federal cert to declare the patent subject of the license invalid without prior termination of the, la- of the license. That was 1983. Genprobe was 2004. Something happened in the interval. Finally, the discussion of settlements here uh, strikes me as indeed strange because if this, if a license were to be re- redesignated as a settlement, we would have the situation here where a license was signed in 1977. The only patent at issue in this case was not even issued until 2001. Thank you, Mr. Kester. Thank the, you, Mr. The case is submitted.